what it means to work in manufacturing is changing and changing quickly. Once a beacon of employment for working class communities across the country, the U.S. has lost more than 5 million factory jobs since 2000. Thanks to advances in automation and robotics, manufacturing output continues to grow strongly, but we need fewer people actually working on the factory floor. And increasingly, you need a college degree to qualify to work with this new technology. So will the U.S. ever lead the world in manufacturing again? Given the trends, do we even really want to? This is work in progress. Keeping an American business alive, it's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. Manufacturing now employs 9% of the workforce. At its peak in the late 50s, it was about 38%. It's unlikely that we'll take it back. There's opportunities here that are untapped. You have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to LinkedIn's Work in Progress, a podcast on the future of the world of work. I'm your host, Senior Editor Caroline Fairchild. And I'm LinkedIn Managing Editor Chip Cutter. I'm heading up a year-long reporting effort for LinkedIn, where I'm traveling across the country, talking to all sorts of different people about what it means to earn a living now. And this week, Chip and I are diving into the very meaty topic of manufacturing. For decades, the U.S. was the world's largest manufacturer. That was undisputed. But in 2010, China displaced America for the top spot and has been continuing to widen its lead. While the U.S. is home to about 18% of the world's manufacturing activity, China has about 22% of it. And manufacturing is one of those industries that's really tied up with who we are. It's part of the American identity. And you hear this on the campaign trail, but you'll also hear it when you're just talking to people in different cities. When I've been in Ohio or Oklahoma, you hear people say things like, if only we could get manufacturing back here, our city would be in a lot better shape. They're not saying things like, oh, I I wish we could get a data center here, or if only a fulfillment center would open up in our town, then we'd see a lot more jobs. There's almost this romance that comes with manufacturing of thinking that it can just be this way, the steady source of employment that would help these people and these towns get to a better place. And President Trump continues to echo that sentiment in his own speeches and policies and even tweets. He keeps talking about how he wants to bring manufacturing jobs back to the U.S., but it's really not that simple. A report from Ball State University out last year found that while international trade accounts for about 13% of lost U.S. factory jobs, a whopping 88% of the jobs were taken over by robots and other factors at home. What does this mean? Well, it means that as technology increasingly consumes the factory floor, we can't expect the manufacturing industry to be the employment driver for the economy that it once was. Given all that, cities that were defined by manufacturing are realizing they also might have to shift their approaches. Gina Locklear is a 37-year-old entrepreneur who makes organic socks in Fort Payne, Alabama. It's a town of about 14,000 with a really interesting history, as Gina told us. Fort Payne, Alabama was known as the sock capital of the world, and one out of every eight pairs of socks manufactured globally came from our small town in northeast Alabama. The sock capital of the world. And at its peak, there were about 140 mills in Fort Payne, Alabama. Now there's just about a dozen left. Slowly but surely, our 140-plus mills really began to shut down because of production moving to Central America. And, you know, you can't help but wonder, 
when are we going to close? So, I mean, that was scary and, and things got quiet. Gina's story isn't all doom and gloom. She actually was able to create two different brands of organic socks. But some of the bigger themes that she talks about here, work shifting overseas, work going to places with lower labor costs, are certainly part of the discussion now when we talk about manufacturing. But as Caroline mentioned before, it's just one piece of it. Automation plays a role. The rise in robotics, the kind of increase in different manufacturing techniques, this all affects whether people can actually have a career now in manufacturing. And to really figure those problems out, we can't just talk about what's going on abroad. We have to solve a lot of things here at home. And our next guest knows more about this topic than arguably anyone in the country, if not the world. James Manika is a senior partner at McKinsey & Company and the director of the McKinsey Global Institute. He's based in Silicon Valley and for 20 years has advised many of the world's leading technology companies and their CEOs on a variety of different issues, including strategy and innovation. He's even published a book on AI and robotics and many academic and business papers on the same topic. James, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Work in Progress. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So you are widely recognized as one of the foremost experts in the future of work. And I want to start by focusing this discussion on manufacturing. McKinsey recently came out with a report on the state of American manufacturing. Can you tell us a little bit about what that report found and where we are in the United States on this topic? Manufacturing is actually one of those sectors that's very, very important to economies in lots of ways, actually. And it's worth uh, elaborating a little bit the kinds of contributions that manufacturing makes to an economy. So, for example, manufacturing is a sector that uh, contributes the most to productivity growth. And productivity growth is actually important for the growth of the overall economy. Manufacturing makes a disproportionate investment in R&D and innovation. So in fact, something like 70% of the investment in R&D in the entire U.S. economy is done within the manufacturing sector. Manufacturing also uh, contributes disproportionately to our trade balances, goods and products and services that the United States or any advanced economy trades with the rest of the world. So it makes these extraordinary contributions to the economy that we we absolutely need. But it's important to remember that um, uh, manufacturing from the point of view of employment is actually declined quite a bit. In fact, the peak for when the share of the economy of people working in the economy was employed in manufacturing actually happened in the 50s, the late 50s, and it's been coming down ever since. Now it's down to where something like 9% of the US workforce works in manufacturing. So I think it's important to keep that in context. And uh, what's also important to keep in context is that for many, many decades, the U.S. was actually the world's leader in manufacturing in terms of value-added uh, output or products for manufacturing. In fact, we had this leadership for the last three or four decades until the last decade when we were overtaken by China. So we've kind of let our leadership erode a bit. And should we be worried about that? You talk about this disproportionate effect that it has on the economy. And there are 30% fewer U.S. manufacturing firms and plants today than there were just in 1997. Well, we should be concerned about this uh, for several reasons. One is that it's a missed opportunity. Again, because of the enormous contributions that manufacturing makes to the U.S. economy. And by the way, I should have mentioned that in terms of the contributions, those contributions are not just within manufacturing itself. One of the things that happens when manufacturing does well, it has what's called an induced effect on the rest of the economy. So whenever you've got a community or a town or a state that is heavily into manufacturing, it also encourages the development of other services and other activities around manufacturing. So it has this kind of 
disproportionate effect. So we should be concerned because we're missing an opportunity. We should also be concerned because when manufacturing doesn't do well, it erodes the U.S.'s competitiveness when it comes to the global economy. So we should be concerned about not being the leader anymore. And I think there's an opportunity for the U.S. to retake leadership. And James, I've been traveling around and talking to people across the country, and you keep hearing in a lot of different spots, particularly though in the Rust Belt, as you just hear this constant refrain that we want manufacturing back. We want that work here. Just we need work. That's all. We need somebody to come in manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. But work here where people can get a job and Live a good life. I talked with someone, though. He's an entrepreneur who wanted to bring the best of factories in Asia to the U.S. He wanted to make made-in-America mugs for Starbucks on a scale that could compete with factories anywhere. He tried this for nearly four years, but had to shut the factory down because he encountered all sorts of different problems. These ranged from just hiring the right people to problems with the equipment and everything else, too. How did it play out? I would say that what makes returning manufacturing hard is you don't have an ecosystem around it when you're bringing something back that isn't there anymore, you know? So, like, ceramics is largely gone now, you know, from, from, from America. So basically what he was telling me was that this ecosystem wasn't there. When his machines would break down, there was no one that knew how to fix them, for instance. He said he just struggled trying to bring automation here. He struggled with finding just the right talent who could interact with these machines. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about just the challenges that you're hearing and trying to kind of bring manufacturing back to the U.S. on a different scale. I think the first comment was around the fact that people need jobs and they want work to come back. Uh, and that's extraordinarily important. The reason why that's important but also understandable is because keep in mind that on average, manufacturing jobs tend to be the higher wage jobs in the economy. If you look at average wages across all kind of occupations and sectors, the manufacturing jobs have historically been the high wage jobs. And it is also the case that it, particularly in the Rust Belt and, and big chunks of middle America, those are counties and states that rely on manufacturing sectors as an important driver of those economies. So no surprise that people are concerned about the lack of manufacturing jobs and the fact that uh, those particular states and parts of the country have been affected. And we should do something about that. Now, in terms of what to do about that and the challenges, uh, I think there's several challenges, but some of these are actually getting better, by the way. So the big challenges you typically hear are, as, he, as the person pointed out, the supply and ecosystem base for manufacturing has been significantly eroded. The second point that I think was also made, which makes this difficult, is that we have a massive skill gap, and that's a huge issue. And you see this across several kinds of occupations that are necessary and important for manufacturing. And so that's why it's no surprise you'll hear employers say they have you know, a huge number of open positions and recs, but at the same time, there are people out of work. We now have this kind of skill mismatch or gap around the skills that are that are required. Right. And as we think about the skills gap, you've written about, instead of thinking about mass unemployment, mass reemployment. And so as we think about this in context of manufacturing, what are the skills that the next generation of manufacturers need to be able to brace for changes in technology, AI, automation? Well, I think when we think about the skills gap, we actually have to think about both 
the gaps today and the gaps going forward. Uh, so the, you know, many of the gaps you'll hear uh, have to do with very technical capabilities that have just eroded. So for example, uh, the number of qualified technicians, that, but qualified in a way that can work with current technologies and the kind of electrical and electronic things that companies are now doing. You'll hear uh, gaps around the ability to work with software and kind of programming tools uh, because you know, manufacturing, in large part, many of the occupations now involve these digital skills that uh, we haven't quite enabled people to build those skills and be trained to have them. So you can go, you know, almost activity by activity and identify all these gaps. So let's unpack that a little bit. I find this conversation so exciting and complicated because we're talking about this issue we're having with workers being able to work alongside machines and work alongside automation on top of the skills gaps that we're already facing in the U.S. that have nothing to do with that. So in a McKinsey survey of young people and employers in nine countries, 40% of employers said they lack the skills that were necessary for entry-level job vacancies. We're not talking about operating the high-tech robots. We're talking about just these entry-level jobs. Are we in over our heads? How do we unwrap this? There's a lot of work to be done by everybody, actually, on this question of skills gap. And let me provide a little bit of historical context. One of the things that was quite interesting, so I happened to have been involved uh, in 2010 in the U.S. Competes Act. So this was an act by Congress to look at the questions of how competitive was the U.S. economy. As you might imagine, manufacturing was a big consideration of that. And one of the things that you can see, what we found when we were looking at those trends was that the amount of on-the-job skills training, for example, that the private sector uh, provides into the economy has been declining for decades now. How is it declining, given the trends? Companies are just spending less on it compared to, say, the 70s. So if you actually literally plot the graph of how much is the private sector spending on skilling and worker training, that has been coming down slowly. Now, I'm not saying that the private sector has stopped, but it's coming. It's less than what it used to be. So that's part of the challenge. Part of the challenge is that the skills required themselves have been evolving so rapidly, especially recently, and the rate of change in terms of what the kinds of skills that people need has been has far outpaced the ability of our training institutions to sort of keep up with that uh, and also do it in a way that's closely tied or linked into uh, what the companies actually need. When we talk about that reskilling, I spent some time recently at an Amazon fulfillment center, a 1.5 million square foot Amazon warehouse, uh, about 30 minutes outside of Minneapolis. And when we talk about that pace of change, one of the employees I talked to there, he's been at Amazon for about nine years at this point. He told me that he thought humans had a real advantage over the machines. He gave an example of how Amazon's business might need to triple around the holidays if it's a more human-focused warehouse that can hire a lot of people to do that, and then they can be let go after the holidays. It might be harder to do that with machines. A robot can only work so fast. A robot only has certain capabilities. A robot, you can't cross-train to do 10 different things. That robot does that job. This meat puppet can do 20. So he called himself a meat puppet, which I had to, you know, try not to laugh when he was saying that. I thought that was a pretty memorable line. But do you agree with his sentiment there that humans are able to kind of be more versatile? His comment is deeply insightful in the following sense. And one of the things that, uh, so I, as, it, as it happens, uh, I, I mean, I, I was educated and trained as a, as a roboticist, as an AI uh, researcher. That's what I did my PhD. In. And, and if you talk to kind of uh, technologists and roboticists, they'll tell you that, and uh, that, 
there are some things that machines are very good at, and then there are things that humans are very good at. So one thing that humans are very good at is we know that we are very good at solving problems in very different domains and very unstructured domains. So things we've learned in one space, we can take to another arena and apply those learning and those insights and those skills. So his human meat puppet comment is exactly spot on. We can adapt and work in very different environments. Machines, on the other hand, at least so far anyway, are particularly good uh, when we've got highly routinized environments, highly structured work. So if, if a machine has to do physical work, in a very structured environment. So think a very standardized assembly line. Those are th and, it, and it has to do that repetitively in a way that's very routinized. Those are things that machines do very well. The rest, which is working in a very you know, uh, unstructured places, having to adapt to this condition, that condition, having to apply judgment, uh, et cetera, those are things that machines are not very good at. So if we could find a way to have people and machines work together in a very complementary fashion where we're doing the things that we each do best, that's actually quite compelling. And that point of view isn't one that we hear a lot in the media. And maybe that's because it isn't as sexy as saying that the robots are going to take over everything. So talk to me a little bit about when you say that humans need to adapt how does that Amazon fulfillment worker need to adapt? How does the manufacturer that we heard from in a previous clip, how does he need to change the way that he's thinking about his work? And what are the structures in place in the economy right now to help them do that? Well, I, I think the, the adaptation takes uh, at least two forms. One is, you know, for example, when, we, when people start to work alongside machines, part of the work then changes. So the machine starts to do the very routine aspects of that work, uh, and the human starts to do the more judgment, uh, generating insights or adapting part of that work and organizing, in fact, what the machine, what the machine does. So the skills that the worker then now needs to have are skills about just how to solve problems, how to uh, apply their intuition and judgment, and also, quite frankly, how to learn to either program or teach the machine to do what it does. Now, that can either be highly technical in terms of programming the machine or highly intuitive. Right. But in order to be able to train your workers to work alongside machines, you have to have your workers in the right place to begin with. And a report out by McKinsey discussed that some of the mismatches in the labor market is locational. You can't find the right people in the right place to come do the work. So where there is demand for work, it doesn't always match where available and qualified workers can be found. What are some potential solutions to this problem? This one is harder. Uh, and as you point out, the mismatches are not just skill, but also locational. And the reason why it's harder, Caroline, is because you know, we know that over the last three or four decades, contrary to what we often think of for the American workforce, worker mobility has actually declined. People don't just don't, aren't as mobile as they used to be anymore. And so the more you see these mismatches, both skill-wise but also locational ones, uh, the harder it becomes to actually solve them. Now, on the one hand, I think for some occupations, technology will help with some of that because what it'll, it'll help in a couple of ways. It'll help because some work can be done remotely now and technology has enabled some of that, but not all work, but some work will benefit from that. The other thing that technology will actually do to solve that problem is by making it easy to discover that there is work someplace else that matches your skills. That's why I liked, for example, you know, what platforms like LinkedIn and other things do, because they enable some of that matching to actually occur. 
Well, and when we talk about migration, I think it's also worth noting that that immigrants also fill a role in this. Immigrants who are willing to move to some of these locations to do these jobs can help to fill the kind of gaps in the labor pool in, the, in these areas. So I'm curious, not to get too political, but to kind of hear your thoughts on what any potential changes in immigration policies might mean. I mean, do you think that you know President Trump's uh, policies, for instance, might make the skills gap worse in some of these places if there was a decline in immigration? What we know as a factual point is that, in fact, immigration has, on the whole, been a net positive for innovation, for employment, uh, and for filling skill gaps, and for complementing the work that gets done in the economy. And we also know that, in particular, with long-term trends around aging, which is increasingly the case in countries like the United States, but also especially in countries like Europe, immigration has played an important role. So I think the role of immigration is actually quite important, and quite often, Immigrants, by definition, are inherently mobile. That's why they're here. So they, they quite often will go to where the work is, and quite often they come with high skills. A lot of research has been done by us and others that generally show that the net impact on productivity and growth from immigration is actually positive. And in some narrow cases, there are some downward pressures on wages, but on the whole, it's a net positive. So it is as an economic question much research that we've done and others have done would say that immigration is actually a net positive to the economy. And you've written that the U.S. is increasingly kind of this two-tier economy and that one-fifth of the U.S. workforce hasn't advanced in more than three decades. What's going on with the American dream? Where are we with that? Is it alive? Do you think that the country is moving towards a positive place? How are you thinking about that? Well, I, th- I think in some ways, the one of the worrying trends in recent times has actually been the stagnation of incomes and wages. And this has been a general phenomena across most of the advanced economies in the world. It's been particularly acute in the US and the UK and France and a handful of countries. And it's actually quite striking because the last decade is the first decade in a very long time when a huge majority of US households saw their wage-driven incomes stagnate or decline. And it's actually quite striking. This isn't so much a question of inequality per se, just the stagnation itself is quite striking. So just to give some quick factoids on this, if you had looked at the decade between, say, 1995 and 2005, the percentage of U.S. households that saw their wage-driven incomes stagnate or decline was a very small number. It was only 2%. And yet, if you compare, if you ask that same question between the decades 2005 and 2014, that number was like 81%. That's everybody for the most part. I mean, that's a huge number of people. So you ask the question, why did that happen? Now, of course, a big part of that was the recession. I mean, that was the deepest recession in 75, 80 years. So that was a big part of it. But the other part is that the fact that the way in which our economy works has been changing over time. And so we have to address this question of incomes because this can give rise to political instability, dissatisfaction, and the kinds of concerns that people have. Well, and so for the people who do feel left behind, and a lot of my travels, talking to people in the Midwest, talking to people in traditionally kind of Rust Belt areas, and they kind of have some of these strongest feelings of just saying that the American dream just feels out of grasp for them. It just feels harder to reach. So I'm curious if we do see this revival of manufacturing in the U.S., where are these new hubs going to be? Is it going to be in some of these Rust Belt areas, or are we going to see these jobs in much different places? And could you talk a little bit about where these new jobs might be? 
there's several things that actually give one uh, reason for optimism about reviving manufacturing. Because again, as if manufacturing is one of these both directly and indirectly, one of the inducements or one of the things that leads to better jobs and higher incomes and wage increases and so forth. The things that give one reason for hope are the following. First, uh, if you look globally, uh, there's a big trend towards now digitizing manufacturing. And I think one of the things that digitizing manufacturing does is a set of trends with the 3D printing and 3D manufacturing and all the all decentralized manufacturing. Those are things that the U.S. should have a strong head start on because many of those innovations are here. So I think that's an important trend that should lead to work being located here. It's in our favor. Now, we still have work to do to build the skills for that. The second thing that's also in our favor that should help uh, people in the middle part of the country and also the Rust Belt is the fact that uh, a big con- there are several big considerations that go into where companies locate manufacturing activities. Labor costs is just one of those. There are other considerations, things like the cost of energy, for example, the cost of logistics and being close to your customers, et cetera, et cetera. Several of those things are actually now tilting in our favor. The U.S. has been able to reduce the cost of energy through the innovations in, in energy that have been extraordinary, That is in a way that's actually caused and is causing increasingly a whole range of manufacturing sectors to tilt the considerations about where to locate manufacturing activities in the United States. So if you were a betting man, would you say in 10 years we'll be number one in manufacturing again, or is it going to be more challenging than you just laid out? Because it sounds pretty good. I think we have the potential to be number one again. We have to solve a few things. We have to address the skills gap question that we just talked about. That's, that's critical. We have to rebuild the supply base to the point that was made in the other clip that the ecosystem supporting manufacturing has to be rebuilt because we've gutted it out. We have to stimulate investment back into the U.S. So one of the, one of the things that's quite staggeringly surprising is that right now the rate of investment by the private sector back into the United States is actually been historically low. It's just been low. So whether you know the reforms that are being discussed, whether it's repatriation or any of these things, to the extent that we can orient that back into investment here in the United States, that'll make a big difference. So there's a set of things that we have to do. And I think if we can do those things, there's no reason why the U.S. shouldn't be the leading manufacturer in the world again. But that involves actions, not just by government, by the way, but also by the private sector itself, a working concert with, the, you know, with governments and policymakers to make sure we make manufacturing a real focus and revive it again because it matters. So manufacturing isn't dead. We might have a competitive advantage if we play our cards right. Absolutely. The big caveat, though, and I think it's important because we were talking about skilling, I think as exciting as I think manufacturing is and the possibilities, we should be mindful of the fact that this isn't going to solve all our job and wage challenges. Because, as I said, manufacturing now employs 9% of the workforce. At its peak in the late 50s, it was about 38%. It's unlikely that we'll take it back to where it was about 38% again. We should grow it from the 9% that it is, but I don't think we should delude ourselves that we're going to grow the share of manufacturing employment to the 30, 40, 50% level. James, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That was James Manika of McKinsey helping us unpack the challenging road the U.S. will have to go down if we really want to lead the world in manufacturing again. 
I think what we learned today is that there are a bunch of factors in play that make the U.S. stand a chance at regaining the top spot, but we also have to think about more than just manufacturing when it comes to employment. Right now, it's sort of dominating the national discussion on employment and wage growth, but as James mentioned, we can't just rely on manufacturing to get the economy back to where it was. That's right. It won't be the dominant piece of the economy. It might be a part of it. But James is telling us we need to think think broader. But I think the reason you still have this real interest in bringing manufacturing jobs back is just because of what those jobs meant in the past. Someone in a lower skill role, someone in maybe a lower class of society could use a manufacturing job to kind of get to middle class, to really raise their whole income, their whole family's well-being. I think there is that desire to have some kind of role like that again. So you can see there's just this romantic element around manufacturing now, this romance of wanting to bring manufacturing back, even though the economy has moved on. Right. And that's not to say that the romance is completely over with manufacturing. I think it'll still be a part of the American identity, but it can't be everything. It can't be what it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. Going back to Gina, the sock manufacturer that we heard from earlier in the show, whose family grew up making socks as well. Year-round, she employs between 15 to 20 people, and that number jumps to about 40 during the peak season. Obviously, she's operating a very small company, but she seems to be pretty optimistic about where the future of manufacturing in the U.S. is headed. I feel like we can make it, I guess, (laughs) is maybe how I feel about that. We uh, have been growing steadily, you know, for the past few years, and I feel like there is, of course, you know, that time when we first started I didn't know what was going to happen. We would get slow time or have slow times and I would be, you know, concerned, um, you know, that the business may not make it. I don't have those concerns anymore. Um, I think that we're going to be able to, you know, stay around, but it's just um, now it's kind of like different concerns. Like how do I keep growing the business and how do I grow it to where I always envisioned it would be? So, but I think that's kind of every, every entrepreneur. It's just always, I guess, throwing things to the wall, seeing what sticks. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please feel free to rate and review our show on iTunes. And if you want to hear more of Gina's story, search hashtag work in progress on LinkedIn. We created a short documentary on her business, and it's actually the first in a series of documentaries that we're exploring on the themes we talk about in this show. Also, we'd love for you to share your thoughts on the podcast and the issues we discussed here today on LinkedIn using hashtag work in progress. You can find me on LinkedIn at Caroline Fairchild and Twitter at CFair1. And to follow Chip Cutter, follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter as well at Chip Cutter. This week's show was produced by Florencia Iriando and David Pond. He's son Wee and Scott Erickson contributed reporting. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>